It's our prayer, God. Through the preaching of your word, the proclamation of your gospel, you alone, God, speak into our lives and into our hearts. So we open our hearts to you now, Lord, the distractions, the clutter that would so easily keep us from hearing your truth. Please, Father, stir in our hearts. Holy Spirit, draw us into your presence. Lord Jesus, your teaching. As we've been going through Mark, you've been teaching us and you've been growing us more and more into the men and women that you've designed for us to be. Please continue that in our lives individually, but also for us as a church. We praise you, God. Open our hearts to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 12, or if there's one in the chair near you as I release the children, thank you, Steve, through grade four, if you want to head off to the classes that are ready for you, and uh, we'll be in Mark chapter 12. And so I guess I'd start out with a question. I wonder, have you ever, have you ever had a question that surprised you? Have you ever been asked a question that maybe it just surprised you? And we had a chance for that to happen. Karen and I were at a, uh, a conference up at Green Lake, and we were making our way back, and we came through Madison and decided we'd stop and have something to eat and, and stretch our legs a little bit. And so we, we pulled off, uh, off the freeway and, and went in there, and, and, and there was an olive garden, and we had a gift card, so that's good, you know, because that's like a free meal. Spare no expense when I take Karen out. And so, you know, we, we come up, and we pull into the parking place, and the parking place just happened to face the highway, and I looked across the street, and guess what? There's a newer Chick-fil-A in Madison. So I said to Karen, I said, there's a Chick-fil-A, and she's like, well, that's a no-brainer. So, you know, because if you live in Walworth County, you don't get to Chick-fil-A very often, So, and it wasn't Sunday. And so we, we went across and, and went to the Chick-fil-A. And as I said, it was kind of a newer store, so we went in, and Karen went to the restroom, and I was waiting, and the manager came up to me, and he said, how would you like to be a mock customer? And I said, well, in reality, I was kind of looking forward to being a real customer, but, um, <laughs> you know, I, I guess, sure, I could fit that in. And he said, okay, well, I'd, I'd like to ask you if you could, at some point when you're ordering, ask your, your server there if she could tell you how much iron is in one of the products that you order. I thought, well, I, I could do that. And so Karen came back from the restroom, and we walked up to the counter, and, and we're ordering, and, and I thought some chicken nuggets would be good, and then Chick-fil-A has chicken soup, which I didn't know. And I thought, well, that would be good to try that. And I said, could I have a bowl of the chicken soup? Is it good? And she said, oh, yeah. And I said, well, could I have a bowl of that? And, and by the way, could I ask you how much iron is in that chicken soup? And she said, well, of course. And she starts working on the cash register, and Karen looks at me and goes, What's the matter with you? <laughs> Have you are, what, what is going on? What, what do you care how much iron is in the soup? And I said, well, you know, I, I, I thought I should start eating more healthy. And <laughs> she was surprised by the question. And... She said to me, she said, after 40 years, you still find new ways to embarrass me. And <laughs> I probably could have told her ahead of time. But you see, she didn't realize that at that moment in time, I was a mock customer. 
She thought I was a real customer, but I had an important. So we went off to the condiment station, and I said to her, I said, now, I was this, I had to do this. And she's like, okay, fine. But the point is, if there is one, um, is that Jesus was never surprised by any of the questions that came to him. Just like the server wasn't surprised. She had been trained, and she was ready to answer that question. But Karen was somewhat surprised. And we see that in the case of Jesus, too. Many times the questions that come to him, he's never surprised, but the way that he answers them are a real surprise for the people who are listening. So let's take a look at that. Oh, and I've had lots of people ask me how much iron is in the chicken soup at Chick-fil-A. I would say that you should go as a mock customer. <laughs> and go ahead and ask your server, and you'll be surprised at the answer. I should tell them? Okay. None! There's no iron in the soup at I have no idea if that makes any difference or not. But. Okay, so we're looking at Jesus, which let's bring this back. Jesus brings clarity, and that's what we're going to see through the things we're looking at today, is through these many questions that he's being asked, Jesus brings clarity as to what's going on with the kingdom of God. And you'll remember that he came, chapter 1 tells us that he came to bring the kingdom of God, and so as he continues, and, and you know, more than likely this is Tuesday of the week that he's, um, that he's going to the cross, he'll be headed to the cross um, and Passover Thursday and headed to the cross on Friday, so we're, we're really closing in on, on his final days here on earth, and, and so the questioning comes, and, and it starts with uh, verse 13 where it says, later they sent some of the Pharisees. Well, who are they? And to figure out who they are, we actually have to go back to chapter 11, verse 27, when it says that when Jesus came into Jerusalem, the chief priests, teachers of law, and elders came to him. So this third entry into Jerusalem, as Pastor Gabe helped us understand, this third entry into Jerusalem He's met once again by the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law, and they confront him with some things and ask him by whose authority he's teaching. And, uh, and, and, and so then he goes into the parable that Josue helped us look at last week, and then he begins to teach them through the questions that they ask. And so they are these teachers, elders, and chief priests, they send some Pharisees and Herodians. Now, the Pharisees and Herodians, as we look at that, we don't fully understand why it's so unusual that the two of them would come together. But the Pharisees and the Herodians, you see, they wouldn't necessarily travel together very often because the Herodians were a political party. And so the Herodians would many times be involved, and they were, of course, as their name would imply, they were loyal to Herod. So they were very much in favor of taxation as they bring this question. But the Pharisees, on the other hand, were a religious sect. And so as we look at the Pharisees and the Herodians, most times they wouldn't travel together necessarily. The Herodians would have been up in Galilee most of the time where Herod was, and the Pharisees, of course, most of them would have spent their time in Jerusalem or that near area. But the Passover would have brought them together. And so the, about the only thing they had in common was a desire to see Jesus put away and taken off the scene. Because you see, they both had it pretty good 
They both, they both were, were in situations where they were more than likely uh, of means. They had wealth. They had all these things, and they had things going pretty well within the Roman Empire. They had smoothed things out pretty well. And so the last thing they needed was someone like Jesus who came and made all these troubles and trials for them. So they were united in coming against Jesus. And so you can imagine, as they went off, it says um, in, the, in the end of verse 12, they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. So they went away to try to devise a way to get Jesus off the scene. So you can imagine them sitting in a room trying to figure out what's the perfect question for us to take. What's the, the perfect question for us to take to eliminate this once and for all? And they came up with it. It's a question about taxes. Well, we all know the question about taxes already brings up emotion for you, right? Many of you are like, I'm really frustrated because I don't pay enough taxes, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. All right, so, so they come and they ask this question about taxes. And the reason this is such a perfect question, you see, if Jesus says, yes, you should pay the taxes, then what happens is the crowd that's been following him, there's this crowd that's been following Jesus around and they've really enjoyed and they're getting to, they love his teaching and those types of things. And so if, if he says yes, that crowd's going to be like, oh, and it's going to cause angst there. And if he says no, then he'll be brought in with the zealots. And if he's brought in with the zealots, then you're going to see Rome coming against him and he's got so much popularity that if he's got that popularity as a zealot, Rome will put an end to it. So it's a perfect question. No matter which way he answers, they win. So they think. And so they ask him, should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy, and why are you trying to trap me? Jesus knew the answer to that question. That question was for the crowd. Why are you trying to trap me? He knew why they were trying to trap him. They were trying to trap him because he placed a threat on their comfort. Their comfort had been found in, in, in the way that they had established their relationship with the government and those types of things. Their comfort had been found in, in this world, in this place. And Jesus threatened that. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So they brought him a coin, and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. I have a picture of what that coin probably looked like. It's this denarius, and on the front is Tiberius, Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, it says. And then on the back, it's a high priest, and it's the picture of peace there. And so this would have been the coin that they would have shown to him. And he said, whose image and whose inscription? And, and they said, Caesar's, because they didn't realize that his question was actually going to reveal to them their answer. And he said, so then, render to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God what's God's. A brilliant answer. A brilliant answer. Because you see, within this answer, he's helping them see first and foremost, he says to them, give me a denarius, and they just happened to have one. So they reached in their pocket and handed him one. See, they were using the money of Caesar to exist on the world. See, within the earth's economy, the currency that's needed is the currency of the day. And at that point in time, it was the currency of Caesar. And so as you lived, as they lived in the time of Caesar and, and in the place they were using his currency to exist, so 
whatever currency they were using, they needed to fulfill the obligations of, the, of that currency. In this, Jesus is teaching that the kingdom has a different currency. There's a different currency that, than, than the currency of earth for the kingdom of heaven. There's a different currency. And so, as Jesus answers and says, render what to Caesar what's Caesar, and to God that which is God's, he's not saying that what belongs to Caesar isn't his, because everything belongs to God, amen? And so, even the things that belong to Caesar belong to God. So, he's not saying that. Rather, what he's saying is to look at what belongs to God, and, and as you function temporarily on this earth, use the currency that's here, but realize that there's a currency of heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Ravi Zacharias, as he talks about this passage, says, imagine if, if the Pharisees and Herodians would have said, well, what image is on God's? He would have said yours. See, you bear the image of God. So as he said, render to God what is God's, he's saying, render yourself to God. And that takes us back to the parable that we looked at last weekend, doesn't it? Because, you see, the son came to collect that which belonged to God. He came to collect the fruit that belonged to to the Father. And in so doing, in that parable, he reveals the authority that he had, and he also reveals that everything belongs to God. And so as he comes to the, to the tax piece, he's taking him right back to the parable that made him so angry. And he's saying, give to God that which is God's. And the Sadducees come up. And the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. They say there's no resurrection. You see, the Sadducees are, a, are another uh, sect of the, of the Jewish leadership. And we see, as we look at Mark, there seems to be a pretty big separation between the Jewish people and their leaders. The, these leaders are set aside. They're separate. They've, they've set themselves aside. They, they've, they've set themselves aside as, as being more prominent and more understanding. And, and so the Sadducees, it's the first time and the only time we see them mentioned in Mark is in this account. And they, they don't believe in the resurrection, but apparently they want Jesus out of the picture as well because he's, he's not fulfilling the image they had of the Messiah. And so he comes to them, or they come to him with this perfect question. The Sadducees, you see, say there's no resurrection, so they come with this, with this um, hypothetical situation. And even as Steve was reading that hypothetical situation about the seven brothers, you're thinking, really, isn't this a little excessive? Just ask what you want to ask. But you see, this is a very important question. And we have a hard time seeing it. But for the Sadducees, this was something that they really wrestled with. You see, the Sadducees, for the most part, studied the first five books of the Bible, and they studied it intently. But for them, that was Scripture, the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Whew. Just the five books you all spend your time in, right? And they studied that, and they looked at it. And in there, they didn't see resurrection. They didn't see angels. They didn't see these things, so they didn't believe in them. 
It's been said that they didn't believe in the resurrection, and that's why they were sad, you see. <laughs> that one's old, I know. But it helps you remember. So they ask this question, and this question's important, and what's important is within it, each one of the brothers don't have any children. Because if there were any children born, then that would have been the one that they would have spent eternity with. But since there was none, in their mind, what it showed was the absurdity of the potential of there being a resurrection. Because it would create such a problem at the resurrection that, that they wouldn't, that, that just for them, it proved that there was no resurrection. And so they asked the question of Jesus, whose, whose wife will she be? And Jesus answers, are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? Again, these are people who spend their whole time studying Scripture. So imagine that you're a person who spends your whole day studying Scripture, five books of the Bible, you've got them memorized, and you recite them in your mind back and forth, and you know them, and you know them well. And Jesus answers your question by saying, you don't know the Scriptures. Who? Could you imagine the tension in the room? You could cut it with a knife as the rest of the people are looking at the Sadducees going, what are they, he just, he just told them they didn't know what they're doing. Then he goes on to explain how it is that they don't know the power of God. You see, they, he says to them, when the dead rise, when the dead are raised is the better translation for that, when the dead are raised, because that talks about the power of God raising people from the dead. It's only because of the power of God that that happens. And when that happens, there will not be marriage. People will not marry, will not be given in marriage, but it will be like the angels in heaven. Now, that's not saying we'll be angels. Okay, that's not what that's saying. We won't be angels. Those of us who know Christ, who come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, who have absolute assurance that when we die, we'll be raised again. <coughs> when we're raised, we don't become angels. But we will be like angels in that, just as angels are not married or given in marriage, we will not be either. There's different relationships when the resurrection comes. So those relationships that we have here will be different in heaven. They'll be better, okay? Because there'll be no sin in the way. So the relationship that we all have with each other, all of us who know the Lord, who are gonna spend forever together, amen? Look around and say, oh, I'm so glad I'm going to spend forever with you, amen? Which is why we should just work on getting along now, right? <laughs> Might as well. As we look at that and consider the relationship will be even better, the relationship that I have with Karen, as amazing as it is here on earth, will be better in heaven, but it won't be marriage because I've been raised the second thing he says is about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses? And so he's going back to them and he's saying, listen, you've studied the scriptures. And he's not saying this, but it's implied. Since you only, since you only trust the first five books, let's go to the, one of the first five books and find where the resurrection's taught. And he goes to one of the most, most well-known passages, Moses and the burning bush. And he said, you see, here is the resurrection. 
God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are badly mistaken. You are very wrong. So he's telling these leaders, these, these priests, these ones who've studied more than anybody else that they're very wrong about the way that they've understood Scripture. They've missed the most significant thing, the resurrection. See, that's the purpose of God, right? The purpose of God is that we would be in, in a perfect relationship with Him. That's the purpose of God. It's why you were created. It's why you were designed. You were designed and created to be in a perfect relationship with God. He knit you together in your mother's womb for that purpose. And sin comes and breaks that and keeps that from happening. But it does not change God's purpose for your life. And that's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus came. It's why he lived. It's why he died. It's why he died on the cross and took our sin upon him. It's why he, he raised again from the dead so that we could be sure that we could be resurrected and spend forever with God living out the purpose for which we've been designed. Oh, please, somebody yell out amen. amen. Okay. I love being excited enough for all of us but it's okay if you get excited too. Because you see, they missed it. They had been so involved in studying what God was saying that he missed what God was saying. God had an eternal covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was an eternal covenant, and so they are alive, and God is the God of the living. And when you die... If you know Jesus as your Savior, you will be raised to a life with him forever. And if you don't know that, and if you believe there is no resurrection, you are badly mistaken. Thank you, John. Know the truth. The truth will set you free. Ooh. The next one. The kingdom is identified by sacrificial love. The greatest commandment. Now one of the teachers of the law come up, and, and they notice that Jesus gave a good answer. I'm sure that was encouraging for Jesus. And of all the commandments, which is most important, he says, and Jesus says, the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all that you have and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love people is basically what he says. And <laughs> the man replies, well said, you're right. Amen. Jesus was right. Uh, how many times do we do this? How many times do we question Jesus? See, we're reading these people, and, and these were people who love Jesus. You love God. They're, they're chasing God. They just don't see how Jesus fits into this. And, and how many times do we question Jesus? Do we come to him and it's like, well, there was an answer that was really right. You're right, Jesus. That's the best answer because it lines up with mine. <laughs> right? And sometimes the answer Jesus brings doesn't necessarily line up with mine. And I'm not so quick always to say that's right. And I may not follow him in that direction. But this man says, you're right. It's more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. You see, this man had, had known all the passages in Scripture, perhaps, that talk about how Jesus, our God, said, just take away your sacrifices. 
because they don't mean anything to me if they don't have your heart behind them. Jesus saw that he had answered wisely. He said, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You're not in the kingdom of God, but you're not far. From then on, no one dared ask him questions. You see, the questions meant to trap Jesus do not seek enlightenment. Rather, they seek to humiliate him and to embarrass him and to discredit him. And from this moment on, publicly, nobody asks Jesus questions anymore. They will when the mock trial comes, but the questions have stopped. And so Jesus begins to ask questions. And while he's teaching in the courts, he asks the question, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? Now, that's a big question. And here's the teachers of the law. And you know he said, be careful of the Pharisees. He said, watch out for the Sadducees. And now he's saying, watch out for the teachers of the law. Watch out for their teachings. Why do they teach this? Do you know that nowhere in the Old Testament does it explicitly say that <coughs> the Messiah will be the son of David? Nowhere in the Old Testament does it explicitly say that. It says that he'll be the branch of David, that he'll sit on David's throne, and that, that David will be his father, and these types of things, but nowhere does it explicitly say this. But it became a teaching in the intertestamental period, and it's a teaching that Jesus didn't correct. You'll remember a couple of weeks ago when the elders were teaching, we looked at blind Bartimaeus, and blind Bartimaeus cried out when he heard Jesus, Jesus, son of David. And Jesus didn't correct him. When he came into Jerusalem in the triumphant entry, cried out, the son of David. And so Jesus didn't correct him. But what he wants these people to think and consider, and even the verse that he uses to support this, Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. It's the most quoted verse from the Old Testament and the New Testament. We find it all throughout the New Testament, specifically when we get to Hebrews, and, and we see that it's being used to show that Jesus is the Son of God. Remember that as Jesus burst onto the scene, He comes, he comes as Messiah, but Messiah has an understanding that isn't clear as to why Jesus came the first time. The son of David, Messiah coming as son of David, carries a political understanding that he will come and overthrow Rome, which is what people are looking for. And what they don't understand is that before, before the, the, the governments of the world are overthrown, sin must be taken away, and sin must be overthrown. And in order for sin to be overthrown, Jesus must be much more than the son of David. He must be much more than the son of man. He must be son of God. And that's how Mark starts. The beginning of the good news, Mark 1.1, about Jesus the Messiah, the son of God. And so we're coming at the end of Jesus' life for him to help people understand yet again that he's more than the son of David. He's more than a man. He is God. He is the son of God, son of man. And as such, he will be able to go to the cross, to the grave, and to the resurrection and bring eternity in the lives of those who believe in him. And the large crowd listened to him with delight. The final thing we see Jesus teaching here 
He's taught that the kingdom uses a different currency. He's taught that the kingdom has different relationships. He's taught that the kingdom is identified by sacrificial love. He's taught that the kingdom uh, Messiah is Lord, and now he teaches that the kingdom's people give instead of take. And he uses this he talks to the teachers of the law, and he says, watch out for them. They like to walk around in flowing robes, greeted with respect in the marketplaces, have the most important seats and places of honor and banquets and lengthy prayers, and they devour widows' houses. So he talks to them about these, these teachers of the law who love to, to feel comfortable here in this economy. And they do that by taking whatever they can in order to feel comfortable here. And he says, watch out for them. They will be punished most severely. Listen, if your focus is on here and the most possible comfort you can have for here, you're missing the purpose of God for your life because God is working an eternal purpose. He's got an eternal purpose and an eternal plan for your life. And the circumstances that are in your life, whatever they may be, if they're incredibly good, according to the way they feel, or if they're incredibly bad according to the way they feel, whatever it is, he's working an eternal purpose through those things. He, he longs for you to be in step with him on his mission to win as most possible people to a saving knowledge of him to spend eternity with him in heaven, to, to joy, to have joy with being in his presence and for him to have joy with us being in his presence. And so... He's, he, these men will be punished if you are focused only on this earth and you don't understand the eternal nature of your life and what you've been made for. You will be punished. You will spend eternity apart from God. And so Jesus goes to the temple te treasury and he sits down and he watches the offerings being put in. Many rich people threw in large amounts but a poor widow came, put in very two small copper coins worth only a few cents. And he calls his disciples over. And he says, come, you need to see this. Come, come, come. This widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of her wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Jesus watches. Jesus watches people give he watches the rich give a lot. He watches the poor give a little. He watches. But listen, man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the... So as Jesus is watching, he's not watching the amount that goes in. He's not watching the noise that's made when the offering goes in. He's watching the heart of the person because remember... Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, but unto God that which is God's, and you bear the image of God. So are you giving all that you are to God? This widow who had two coins, one sixty-fourth of a day's wages, two small coins, the ones that you walk by and won't even pick up on the road, it's all she had to live on. But she understood that she was God's. And that all she had was God's. And she gave it all to him. Think of the parable, once again, of the vineyard. Right? This parable of the vineyard. God sent his son to accept. 
Listen, some of us, listen, this is not a prescriptive passage. This is a descriptive passage. It's not saying that every person should give every penny they own. That's not what we're talking about here. It's descriptive of my heart as I give. Are you ready to give all of your heart to the Lord? Oh man, he's got something to do through you that he can only do as you surrender to him. But as you surrender all that you have, you step into the currency of the kingdom. And you store for yourself things where rust cannot destroy, where moths cannot break in. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for the teaching of Jesus that once again reminds us that all we have is yours. Oh, Lord God, search our hearts. Where are we ready to give back to you? Where have we tried to surprise you by questions that would give us outs instead of just walking in obedience? You are an amazing God.